And hopefully we can come to, you know, finding out how we can eliminate preeclampsia and all of these hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Research is super, super important. That's one of the other things I advocate for. Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Hi, Maria. Hey, Shelly. Summer started school today. Morgan started school today, too. How was it for Morgan? It seemed to be a good first day. Definitely a little bit of a learning curve because it's, you know, she's got like five or six different teachers this year, whereas last year she only had the one. And she has to move around to different classrooms. So just a, a little bit different, but she said she had a good day in it and she felt like she picked it up pretty quickly. So oh, that's good. I'm happy to hear that. Mm-hmm. Summer's a teenager. So, you know, when you ask a teenager, how is school? It's <laughs> yeah. fine. It was fine. It was fine. Yeah. Okay. Everything's, Everything's fine. fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what grade is she in this year? She's a junior. Well, yeah. Hunter, did he start school yet? He starts on Wednesday. He's going to go for like two days and then mm-hmm. not have school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Four days? That's so weird. Yeah. Those are so weird. Yep. This week, we are speaking about preeclampsia with Dr. Ard. I feel like we're seeing more and more parents with preeclampsia. For sure. But I also feel like we're in a bit of a skewed demographic, Hmm. especially the hospital that I work at. There's a lot of preeclampsia. But it has like the only level three NICU in the area. Right. Yeah. Right. There's that. Right. And there's lots of IVF patients and there's lots of people who are not young anymore and having kids. High risk, generally. Yeah. Yeah, high risk. There's lots of things that stack onto that. So, Mm. but I do feel like I see a lot of, a lot of patients and clients that are like still struggling with swelling and like managing their blood pressure and all of that Mm. stuff. I definitely feel like I've seen a lot more postpartum preeclampsia. Yeah. In the last year or so. I did, like it has become my habit that when I see a new person, the first thing I do is look at their feet mm-hmm. to see what they look like. Yeah. <laughs> their feet and their hands. Yep. Are you having any headaches? Yeah. Feeling dizziness? Yeah. All of those things. But before we. Talk with Dr. Ard. We this isn't necessarily a news story. It came out in July. I just I saved the link to talk about it and then I forgot. <laughs> and we just never talked about it. But the FDA approved the first oral contraceptive over-the-counter pill. Oh yeah. Got it without a prescription. Did you hear um, about that? I feel like it did, but I feel like with all of the other things going on. Around reproductive health. The article said the FDA said it is approving the -the over-the-counter version for all users of reproductive age, including teenagers, a move that is expected to remove barriers to access and reduce the risk of unintended pregnancies. 
Yeah. And I remember, I vaguely remember when that came out and I was thinking, oh, finally we're catching up with the rest of the world. Like when I lived in Brazil a couple of decades ago, you could just go to the pharmacy and get birth control. Like you didn't, you just, I want birth control, please. And they'd be like, okay, here you go. (laughs) Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. It's like, really? And I think that was the first time I ever started taking birth control was in another country. Mm-hmm. Really? That was easy. Mm. So I will link to that article in the show notes if anyone wants to read more about it. And let's move on to our question of the week. This week's question was submitted through Instagram. And the question is, how do you breastfeed in a carrier? I have tried repeatedly with no luck. Yeah. You know, honestly, it just doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. I wish it did. I tried really hard. It was super awkward for me and I could never make it work. I mean, honestly, it just, it doesn't work for everybody. I think a lot of it depends on like breast shape, breast size, baby size, for sure. which carrier. And there's so many variables that come into play. I remember I couldn't nurse in the carrier with my first two, but with Hunter, I could. And he was the biggest out of my babies when he was born. And I wondered if that has something to do with it. Morgan was really long. Like she was really long from birth. And I felt like that made it more difficult for me to position her appropriately because I also have big boobs. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like this long baby and big boobs and like trying to make that work in a carrier just never, it never worked for me. Yeah. So do not feel disheartened Instagram yeah. if you cannot make breastfeeding in a carrier work. I know it seems like it would be the most convenient thing ever, but for some of us, it just doesn't work out. 100% agree. That was a great question. Mm-hmm. And next up, we will be speaking with Dr. Ard. This week, we are speaking all about preeclampsia with Dr. Quantrilla Ard. Dr. Ard is a passionate behavioral scientist and a Black maternal and infant health advocate. Currently, she uses her social media platforms to engage, educate, and inform others about her doctoral research and personal experience with preeclampsia. Dr. Art is a champion of reproductive justice and maternal health disparities and serves as a certified patient family partner with Mama's Voice for the Preeclampsia Foundation and a family health advocate through the Heart for Georgia program. She is an engaged member of the Healthier Generations in the Atlanta Healthy Start Community Action Networks and also volunteers with the March of Dimes Atlanta Collective Impact as co-chair of the Dismantle Racism Work Group and Steering Committee member. Dr. Art also serves as the adjunct faculty at Morehouse School of Medicine's Master of Public Health program, of which she is a proud alum. In addition to the above, Dr. Art is also an accomplished faith-based personal development author and dynamic speaker who has been a guest on several podcasts discussing topics of all sorts, including Black maternal and infant health. She often provides expert opinions on maternal and infant health in various print and online media outlets. Lastly, Dr. Art Humley stewards a grief and loss community and podcast, both entitled It's All Grief to Me, as a coach and liaison for individuals navigating their lost journeys. You can follow her and the work she's involved in at www.thephdmama.com. Hi, Dr. Art. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm so excited to talk to you today about preeclampsia. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Well, my family and I live in the Atlanta area, 
and I am a professor. I am a mom. I'm a wife. I'm also a maternal health. I call myself a maternal health champion because I believe that advocacy is really a part of my everyday life at this point. And I'm always doing something, whether it's in the grocery store or on podcasts like these. I have a very distinct, I think, mix of both lived experience and academic knowledge as well. I hold a PhD in health psychology and a master of public health. So I kind of find myself in both spaces quite often. So yeah, that's a little bit about who I am. And how did you get into this journey that you're on now where you spend a lot of time educating and advocating for not only for patients, but for pregnant patients and for people with preeclampsia? Oh, that's a good question. I think my interest has always been in women's health and Black women's health specifically. And I kind of got into it a little bit while I was uh, going through my public health program. But I really, I think I turned the corner when I had my first child. I was pregnant with my first child and I developed a severe case of preeclampsia. So um, it was touch and go there for quite a while. And fortunately, my son and I both survived. And that really gave me, it kind of pulled the wool off from my eyes. And I knew there were some issues as it related to health disparities and pregnancy with Black women. But it wasn't until I personally experienced it that I really took a deep dive. And then I started to notice that my friends were also having negative birth outcomes. And I said to myself, well, something's not quite right here. Like we all had advanced degrees. We all had good insurance. You know, we lived a very reasonable and and happy quality of life. So why were all of these very well-educated women having this similar outcome. So that really propelled me into my work. And at the same time, I was starting that doctoral program. So I knew that I had found a lane for myself and I knew I wanted to protect other women from experiencing what I had experienced, if at all possible. So I really kind of went down that rabbit hole and I've been like Alice in Wonderland ever since. So... And I'm so glad that you did because I think we need more people like you advocating for others and educating and and it's great the work that you do. Thank Let's you. take a step back and can you define preeclampsia for anyone who's not quite sure what it is? Absolutely. Preeclampsia is a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy where there are certain characteristics. There's typically protein that's seen in the urine and the blood pressure is elevated. It is higher than what we consider the norm. And there are some signs and symptoms that typically present with preeclampsia. Usually there's headaches or blurred vision or upper right quadrant pain, or some people see like spots and things of that nature. But the the one of the things that is really characteristic is that high elevated blood pressure. And typically when you're going into your prenatal checkups, you know, one of the things they do is take your vitals. And one of those is a measure of your blood pressure. And so for most people, preeclampsia kind of comes on suddenly. And what I mean by suddenly is typically if they are not going to prenatal visits, you know, toward the end of your pregnancy, when you're kind of like going every week or every other week, there tends to be larger gaps. 
So sometimes there's, it may slip through a provider's fingers if someone is not checking at home. So that is the typical presentation of preeclampsia. And mine actually was atypical, right? So when I found out I had preeclampsia, I had gone to a regular checkup. I was finally at that last stretch. So I was going to start going every week. I was super excited. But about two weeks before, I felt like, oh, something's not right. And then when I went to that prenatal visit, they were like, oh, your blood pressure is elevated. And I'm like, what does that mean? Because I was looking for something to be wrong. And I didn't have the blurred vision. I didn't have any pain. I didn't have, oh, and the big thing, swelling. That's the other thing, swelling. A lot of swelling, abnormal swelling. Like there's some normal swelling with pregnancy, but swelling that's outside of the typical range for a pregnant person. So yeah, that's kind of um, how I found out I had preeclampsia because I didn't have those typical telltale signs. But one of the things that I always tell people is even if you don't quite have those signs, do you have a general feeling that something's off? Because one thing I have found in talking to a lot of women and birthing people, they are very connected to their bodies during that time. And if something doesn't quite feel right, you know, even if it's something you can't name, which was, you know, the experience that I had, my husband kept asking me, are you hurting? Are you in pain? And I'm like, no, it's not my head. It's not my, you know, but I just had this feeling that something wasn't right. And so I always tell people, you are the expert of your own body. And if you know something's not right, call, speak up, go get a visit and keep pushing until it gets resolved. I 100% agree. And a couple follow-up questions to that. Is there like a threshold? Because I know you can have hypertension during pregnancy and it's not really preeclampsia, right? Is there like a point where like, does the blood pressure have to go above a certain reading for it to officially qualify as preeclampsia? Is it a combination of symptoms with the high pressure that has to qualify for that diagnosis? If you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. Yes. Let me. I want to make sure I'm giving the accurate information. There is a cutoff because, like you said, most women do have elevated pressure in pregnancy because the blood volume goes up while you're pregnant. But let me double check. I want to make sure that I'm giving you the accurate information. But it is a combination of high blood pressure and protein in the urine that is technically what is characteristic of a preeclampsia diagnosis. And let me just double check. I want to give you the right. So it says that patients that have a systolic blood pressure of 140 or greater, and systolic is the the number up top. So you have the number up top, then the line, then the number below. It looks like a fraction, okay? So if your systolic number is 140 or greater, and or your diastolic is 90 or greater, that is suspicious for preeclampsia. So any numbers over those is when people start looking to test for preeclampsia. And typically the numbers are higher than that. Like it's just, it's obvious, right? But again, for most people, when they come in, they're already having some type of symptoms, either headaches or some type of, you know, extreme swelling, which would lead the practitioner to say, oh, let me check that blood pressure. And 
unfortunately, that's when we see it is when people are already kind of symptomatic. So yeah. So that is, those are the characteristics of preeclampsia. So one of the things is you want to keep an eye on your blood pressure while you're pregnant. And I know one of the things that it feels like just one more thing to kind of add to the list of things to watch out for, but because preeclampsia can go into eclampsia or into even HELP syndrome, which involves now you have some systemic issues with your liver and other organs in your body that are now impacted as well. It's very good to make sure you're keeping an eye on that so you can catch it early. Hmm. Or like you said, even if you're just feeling like something, something isn't right. I do find that sometimes in my area, and I don't know if this is the same in your area, Women especially are often dismissed though when they go to their provider and they're like, I just feel like something's not right. I've had that experience several times. I know several of my friends and colleagues who have had that experience. So what would you recommend if you if you do have a parent that's like something's not right and they're kind of being dismissed by their provider? One of the things that I always tell people is that you can get help from anywhere. If you are at a provider and maybe this is not your typical provider, right? And sometimes we have birthing groups, right? Where there are different providers that are all in the same group and you may or may not get your OBGYN every time you go visit or even when you deliver. But if you find that you are constantly being dismissed, go find someone else who will listen, whether it is urgent care facility, the ER. And while these are not ideal situations, someone has to listen to you. And so I always say, if you're not being listened to, find someone who will listen. And, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. Somebody has to listen to you, right? Somebody has to take you seriously. And you just keep searching until you find someone who will listen. Always, always, always advocate for yourself. If you cannot advocate for yourself, let your wishes be known to your spouse, your partner, a loved one, someone that can go with you, especially if you are in a situation where your health has declined to the point where you cannot advocate for yourself. Make sure that someone knows what your wishes are and make sure they feel empowered to push until they get the appropriate answers and they feel satisfied with the treatment that you're receiving. Love it. Yeah. As a doula, I would often tell families like your OB works for you. So if they are being dismissive and not listening, like you can find a different OB, fire that OB, find a different OB. Yeah. For me, what I found helpful is if I feel like a a provider is dismissing me, I often say, I want you to document in my chart that I'm bringing these concerns to you. And I want you to write in the chart why you are feeling like no further investigation or interventions. Because as soon as you ask providers to put that in the chart, that makes them kind of like perk up a little bit more like, oh, like that's, I wish I had known that when I experienced that horrible experience I had. But now that is my favorite thing to do. Oh yeah. You know what? Ask them to document it in your chart because you can't argue with what's on paper. And so that absolutely does have a lot of impact when you ask someone to make a note in your chart. Yeah. We've talked about the symptoms of preeclampsia. How serious is this condition? 
Wow. It is very serious. Preeclampsia is one of the leading causes of maternal mortality. It is extremely dangerous for Black women and women of color specifically, as they are five times more likely to develop preeclampsia and to have more severe cases of preeclampsia. It is one of those things that is very scary because one moment you can feel fine and another moment you're absolutely not feeling fine. And because it can be a sudden onset, often things go badly very quickly. So it is very dangerous, extremely, extremely dangerous. And one of the things that I I try to inform and educate people about is that severe preeclampsia can be to the most point, it can be prevented if you catch it early, right? If you're catching those rising blood pressures early, then early intervention is, for me, it's the key that unlocks everything, early intervention. But if you are staying on top of those blood pressures, you'll have a baseline. And this is the other thing I want to elevate as well. Sometimes there's different baselines for different people, right? And if you have already had issues with hypertension outside of pregnancy, it's almost like you're starting at a different point than everyone else. So the important thing is to find out what's your normal, what's your normal baseline blood pressure numbers. And as you kind of track that over time, you can tell, you know, are these trending up? Are they not trending up, you know, and it's something that you can keep track of and you can, you know, alert your your care provider immediately like, oh, this is looking really different than my normal. And that way you have a track record of what has been going on. And then you can use that to advocate for yourself that, hey, I need someone to listen to me. This is absolutely important. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that idea with the baseline because as someone who my baseline for my blood pressure is typically a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it will be higher and they're like, oh no, it's great. It's still within the normal range. And I have to explain, well, this is like kind of high for me. Like usually I run low. So if you know your baseline, you're able to show that you're documenting it. You, like you said, you're more likely to get listened to, hopefully, fingers crossed. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So what is the treatment for preeclampsia? Once you start to develop it, what do they typically do? So technically, there is not a treatment for preeclampsia, but some of the strategies to reduce blood pressure are to give the pregnant person what's called magnesium. And the magnesium is essentially a muscle relaxant to help relax the blood vessels, right? To help bring that blood pressure down. That's one of the most common ways they will try to help alleviate that issue. Another way typically that, and and it's a misnomer, right? Because they say, oh, the only way we can treat your preeclampsia is to deliver your baby, right? And why it's called a treatment is because the way preeclampsia affects the body, the placenta is the main organ that is involved in developing preeclampsia and the development of eclampsia and HELP syndrome as well. And so what happens is if you deliver the baby and you, you know, get the placenta out, then it should, quote unquote, fix the problem, right? But we know that, you know, typically things are never that simple. And especially I'm thinking of my own experience where after they delivered my son, I still had major high blood pressures 
for months after I was in the hospital for a week because they just could not get my blood pressure down. Right. So when I say it's a misnomer, delivering the baby is not a treatment, but it is a strategy to help mitigate what is happening in that that physiological process in your body. So and often can lead to like a premature delivery and then a NICU stay for the baby Absolutely. as well. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, adds more stress for the parent, which, of course, can increase blood pressure. Mm-hmm. So it's a tough situation. It is, it's unfortunately like a, a cycle because, you know, you don't want to alarm or or make the pregnant person afraid. But at the same time, it's time sensitive. It is an immediate health concern, you know, and the thing with, you know, they're giving the magnesium because, you know, they don't want you to have seizures and strokes if your blood pressure gets too high, right? So there is this sense of urgency when it comes to making some type of decision, which can also, like you said, cause this level of anxiety, which can cause your blood pressure to go up, right? So it's all about trying to navigate how to care for this very sick patient in a way that is compassionate and in a way that allows them to feel like they are part of the process, which can help them feel a little more comfortable and at ease, even though they're making these really big decisions about their bodies and their babies. And people develop preeclampsia after the baby is born, like a postpartum preeclampsia. Yes. Oh, goodness. I remember the first time I found out that preeclampsia happened postpartum. I was just like, what is happening? You know, it is very similar to how you develop preeclampsia as you are pregnant. Similarly, after postpartum going home, you have just had this huge event, this huge birth event happen in your life. And again, hormones, all the levels, everything trying to adjust, and you can develop preeclampsia postpartum. Again, similar signs, you know, looking for swelling, headaches, pain, again, something that just doesn't feel quite right. Like you just have had headaches for a long time. And then the other thing to look at there is, you know, you want to make sure you're staying in contact with your primary care physician or your OBGYN, because if you've had some type of intervention, like maybe you've had an epidural or you've had some type of anesthesia, sometimes the side effects of that can be headaches too. So it's kind of hard to say, well, is this a side effect of the anesthesia or is this a side effect of something else? But that is, I think, the critical part of being educated and knowing just call, right? Like the things I want people to understand is that you cannot overbother your doctor. It is literally their job to take care of you. So if something doesn't feel right, you know, you're at home two or three days postpartum and you just can't get it together or you're sluggish or you're, you know, you're finding yourself short of breath and you're like, what is going on with me? That call, that is a sign to call. Because even though you won't be feeling like going outside and running through fields of flowers, you should not be in such a level of discomfort that you cannot take care of yourself or your baby. And so that is always a red flag to call. And of course, your blood pressure will shoot. It'll shoot up, you know, those characteristic things, high blood pressure, protein in the urine. Those are those characteristic 
telltale signs of preeclampsia. Yeah. And my colleagues and I talk all the time about this because we know as lactation consultants, we're in the family's homes within the first week postpartum. And we're seeing more and more postpartum preeclampsia starting to develop where now when I walk into a family's homes and the first thing I do is look at her ankles, right? And if her ankles are like still very puffy and swollen, it's like, how are you feeling? How's your head? Have you had any headaches? Have you had any blurry vision? And I'm seeing so many moms now who are like, actually, yeah, I've had a headache for the last day. Like, well, maybe you should call your OB. And it's kind of ironic that all these postpartum complications can develop and we're, you know, we're seen in the hospital and then we're sent home. And it's like, okay, see you at your six-week appointment. Although I I realize a lot more doctors are doing two-week postpartum appointments now. But the standard is typically six weeks. And that's a long time to go without having eyes on you by your provider. So true. And I love the fact that people are really considering maybe we should see them sooner. <laughs> you know, maybe we should just ship them out the door and expect them to just, you know, go about their merry way. And it is so true. Like the those critical weeks, those first weeks after being, you know, going home from the hospital are just crucial. They're crucial for your physical and your mental health. And now that we know that preeclampsia can often happen postpartum, it's just like, wow, we just can't leave people alone. You know, we just can't just send them off. And I'm also of the mindset that we just send people home too early as well. You know, we don't give people time to let their body kind of regulate a little bit before we send them home especially like for women who've had C-sections or some type of additional interventions in their birth plans. Like, I just can't see why we're sending people home, you know, 24 hours later or 48 hours later. Like, it's taken almost 10 months to build this human. And, you know, it's like, okay, thank you. See you later. So, yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes there's no in-home nursing care. You know, my husband had major abdominal surgery and he had nursing care for quite a while after. And some people forget, you know, like C-sections are major abdominal surgery, but sometimes there, yeah, sometimes you can get like a one or two visits by a baby nurse or a mom baby nurse. But other than that, you're kind of like on your own, especially in areas where there's like a, like a provider desert or a care desert where you, you have to drive two hours just to get home from the hospital. And if you want to go see your doctor, it's in like another two hour drive there, two hour drive home. So it's kind of a mess in a lot of ways. It is. And I adore the fact that we are now like getting more and more familiar and comfortable with telehealth visits. But even that, it's like it just doesn't replace seeing someone in person, like physically seeing them in person and being able to look at them and hear their responses. So Yeah, so many nuances, so many nuances. Other than the potential for a premature birth, does preeclampsia impact the baby or the baby's development in any other way? It can, actually. Interestingly enough, in my situation, my physician told me, oh, well, your baby's just fine because your baby has learned how to kind of navigate this high-pressure environment. And I'm like, really? didn't know that. But now that I think back, when I got an epidural, because they were like, oh, we're going to induce you immediately. So I went to my prenatal visit, no birth bag, no car seat, no nothing, went to the prenatal visit. 
and immediately was checked into the hospital. So I'm just a hot mess at this point. But he says, oh, you know, don't worry. The baby should be fine. You know, again, the baby has gotten used to this high pressure environment. And so because they decided to induce me, I asked for an epidural. And one of the side effects of epidurals is lowered blood pressure. And for, you know, for most people, that's not a big deal. But, you know, in this preeclampsia situation, it is a huge deal. So once you change that pressured environment, now we are now dealing with issues that can affect the baby, right? So in my case, once the epidural took, it immediately dropped my blood pressure, which then put stress on my baby. So that turned into an emergency C-section because his heart rate dropped, right? So now we're dealing with, okay, we have two human bodies, right? We're trying to navigate balancing one, but again, these two humans are connected, right? So you're trying to balance one, but then you throw the other off. So when it does come to those types of issues in preeclampsia, yes, it can absolutely affect the baby. And some other things could possibly affect the baby's growth, right? Because we don't know exactly how preeclampsia works all the way. So we don't know if there's any type of interuterine growth restriction, right? That's related to preeclampsia because of the pressurized environment. So in certain ways, yes. In certain ways, I think we're still trying to navigate and understand what it means and how it impacts the baby. But the biggest impact to the baby, right, is that preeclampsia typically involves delivering the baby before the due date or the term date, right? So anytime you deliver a baby early, you're going to have some low birth weight issues and all the things that come with the baby being low birth weight, right? Then you're going to have those preterm issues and all the things that come with the baby being born too early, right? Maybe their lungs are underdeveloped. You know, there's so many, it's almost like a domino effect, right? Because again, like I said, you're trying to balance one human, you're trying to balance the things going on with them, but then you're tipping the scales for the baby, or you're trying to navigate, trying to make sure the baby's okay, but then, you know, the parent is having issues, right? And so when we think of preeclampsia, it's not just a one size fits all type of treatment or really, you know, plan. So you really have to kind of just make the best decisions you can as you're going. Unfortunately, you know, preterm and low birth weight babies, we know they don't tend to have good outcomes. And that's one of the major drivers of infant mortality is low birth weight and preterm delivery. And preeclampsia is notorious for having, you know, low birth weight babies and preterm delivery. So in those ways specifically, yes, they impact and influence the baby. And hopefully we can come to, you know, finding out how we can eliminate preeclampsia and all of these hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Research is super, super important. That's one of the other things I advocate for along with you know, teaching people how to speak up for themselves is to share their stories, right? And and to participate in different trials and different research studies that help us, you know, determine and, and nail down exactly what we need to do to help pregnant folks and their babies so that uh, we won't have this issue. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. And like you said, the advocacy, it's so important, especially if if you are put on MAG, which I believe doesn't it's 24 to 48 hours after the birth that you have to stay on the MAG for. Yep. And it's not fun. It makes you feel loopy and out of it. And you're already sick to begin with. You just had your baby. Now your baby, you know, was potentially separated from you in the NICU. Yeah. And you're a loopy. You can't retain any information. Mm-hmm. And so you have your doctors coming into your room. Then you have the baby's doctors coming into the room, talking to you about the baby. And you're just so out of it. So it's always nice to have someone else there that can help you manage that part of it too and help you make those decisions for your baby's healthcare too because it's hard to do that in general but mm-hmm. also when you are on mag and you have blood pressure issues and headaches and all that and you know also with that because it is a muscle relaxant you are not able to get in out of the bed you're not supposed to hold your baby right you're a fall risk and you could drop your baby right so a lot of times, like you said, there's that separation. The baby's already in the NICU because, you know, either they're preterm or they're low birth weight or both, right? And then you are still in the bed. Like, I remember, I don't think I saw my baby m- until maybe 48 hours later because I was so sick and they they wouldn't let me out of the bed. You know, they were like, "We, your blood pressure is stubborn. It will not go down. And so until they could clear me to say, oh, you know, we'll roll you in the wheelchair and let you see him. I think it was at least 48 hours before I saw my baby. And can you imagine how devastating that is for a first time mom? And I really wanted to, you know, breastfeed. So I'm like, well, what's going on with my baby? You know, so just it's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. And as far as like lactation is concerned, being on magnesium can impact supply and milk flow as well as high blood pressure. So it's kind of like, you know, it it turns into this perfect storm where your baby is separated from you. You're on the mag, you're loopy. You can't really hold the pump to pump very well. And your blood pressure is high, which is going to delay your milk coming in and the magnesium slows down your milk flow. So it can, you know, if if you've got your heart set on a certain feeding plan and that is derailed too, it's just like another thing that you feel not so great about. Helpless. That was probably the biggest description of how I felt was helpless. And I mean, of course, I was terrified and all those other things too, but the loss of control was just that was probably one of the worst things I experienced. What are some of the risk factors for preeclampsia? Like, are there things that people can say, like, are there, is there a checklist of risk factors that they have for other conditions where if you have this going on, you are at increased risk of developing preeclampsia? There are some, there are quite a few. And the ones that rise to the top of my head, if you have had preeclampsia in a previous pregnancy, you are more likely to have preeclampsia in a subsequent pregnancy. But first time moms, are typically more at risk to develop preeclampsia. African-American women, for some strange reason, you know, and that's a whole different conversation for a different day because I did a lot of research in that area as well. African-American Black women are more likely to develop preeclampsia. Age, if you are younger, they typically are more at risk to have preeclampsia. And then I read somewhere that if your mother had preeclampsia, you are also 
at higher risk to develop preeclampsia. So there's there's several little branches of things where it isn't really something that that you can control, right? You can't control your genetics, right? You can't control whether or not your mom had it, right? And you can't control your ethnicity. <laughs> these are things that you just cannot control. So in a sense, it kind of feels like these risk factors are kind of like playing Russian roulette, right? But what I will say is just because they are risk factors does not mean they are like, does not mean that you will develop preeclampsia because of these factors, right? It's just showing the trends as we do research and as people are allowing us to, you know, take all of this data and pooling it together, right? We're showing trends toward these groups and these areas, but it is not a sentence, right? It, it does not mean that all Black women will develop preeclampsia. It's just saying that this is trending toward this type of risk factor. So those are some of the risk factors to to look out for. And I think that's useful to know because even though it's not a sentence, even though it doesn't mean that you will develop preeclampsia, you know, as an example, like you said, if you are a young black woman and you know your your mother had preeclampsia, okay, well, maybe you're going to monitor your blood pressure a little bit more carefully. Maybe you're going to buy a blood pressure cuff and keep it at home and just take your blood pressure once a week or something instead of just waiting for it to be taken at the doctor's office. Absolutely. And I think weight was another one. Overweight and obesity was also a risk factor. Yep. And if you've had issues with hypertension prior to as well. Yeah. It's interesting that you said being younger is a risk factor because you would think it would be the opposite. You would. So I, you know, some of these risk factors seem odd, but, you know, again, it is a compilation of, you know, years and tons of data that's been collected and you know, these are the pockets that are being pulled out as far as risk factors are concerned. And, you know, it just, I think it is for all of us, right, to take good care of ourselves as best we can, right? And while these risk factors should not dictate to us when we decide to have children or if we decide to have children, they are just guidelines and parameters for us you know, to take care of ourselves. And like you said, you know, if you find yourself in that, you know, having some of these risk factors, then it would be a great idea to keep a blood pressure cuff on hand, you know, just so that for your peace of mind and your safety, right? Because I can't imagine if I had a blood pressure cuff at home and I had thought to myself, well, let's just, you know, take my blood pressure, you know, every so often and just make sure that it's not a thing. Maybe I would have known sooner. I don't know. But again, I do believe in early intervention as a means of saving lives. So I can only be thankful that we caught it when we did. I don't know how long my blood pressure had been elevated. I believe it had been I would say two weeks because I had just finished those every two weeks. So the last time I was at the doctor two weeks prior, they did not say my blood pressure was elevated. So in a two week span, something changed, you know, and I, I can't say that the outcome would have been different had I known two weeks earlier, but. Potentially it could have. 
It could have. Yeah. yeah. This was yeah. during your first pregnancy, correct? Mm-hmm. So if you do have preeclampsia during your first pregnancy and then you, you're pregnant again, do they do extra, like what other extra observations or tests or interventions do they do, if any? I do know that now there is a, like a baby aspirin protocol. If you have had preeclampsia prior, I know that they are now starting to have pregnant people take a baby aspirin to mitigate the outcome. So I know that's one thing that that is being done because again, preeclampsia is one of those things that you can't control. There's not really any warning signs that it's going to happen. Really that just more monitoring, right? You have to make sure that you are monitoring your blood pressure regularly. And in some places, preeclampsia is seen as a high risk, right? So your next pregnancy, some OBGYNs or maternal fetal medicine doctors would put that particular person on high risk because they've had a serious complication in their previous pregnancy. So it really kind of depends on, you know, where you are, the type of, you know, doctors and care you have. So, yeah. So we're in the U.S. and the U.S. doesn't do great when it comes to infant and maternal mortality rates, especially with people of color, like we were pretty far down on the list. Do we have higher rates of preeclampsia than typically seen in the rest of the world or are there not, there's no relation there? No, I actually don't know the answer to that question. I don't know how we compare outside of the US as far as preeclampsia goes, but I do know again that there is a huge disparity when it comes to women of color developing preeclampsia at higher rates and at severe, you know, more severe levels and unfortunately some of that is related to bias and some of that is related to the access of care and those are things we can change. While we may not be able to control preeclampsia, how it develops, the process, and you know how it develops in the body, we can control whether or not people have access to quality care, whether or not people have access to compassionate care, and whether or not people are believed when they share with their physicians or their OBGYNs that something isn't right. You know, I definitely was terrified to call my doctor because I didn't feel like I had something wrong. So if I called, I was like, well, you know, what are they going to say? You'll be fine. You know, and again, in my head, you know, as a black woman, I'm thinking, well, I need to have something wrong with me (laughs) to be able to call my physician. And really, that's not the frame of mind any of us should have to be in, right, to believe that we won't be taken seriously or our concerns will be dismissed because, quote unquote, there's nothing wrong. And in actuality, there was something terribly wrong. But we have this, some of us have this internalized fear of of being, you know, a bad patient or being a, a hard patient or a difficult patient. And I hear this a lot from women of color because they are afraid to speak up. They're afraid to say something because of the bias and because of the discrimination that happens when we enter birthing spaces as Black women and Black birthing people. So while I don't know how it compares to the world, I do know how it works here in America. And we have a long way to go. I feel like we are starting to have the conversation more often. 
we are hearing so much more about maternal mortality and maternal morbidity, which is really here when it comes to preeclampsia, while there may not necessarily be, you know, maybe a huge number of deaths due to preeclampsia, there are large numbers of maternal morbidity, right? Which is long-term decreased quality of life because of preeclampsia. So, you know, these are things that I feel like we have to keep talking about. We have to keep elevating this conversation so that people understand like this is a life or death issue and this is a life and life issue, right? What happens when someone's quality of life completely changes because they have had some type of severe maternal event? Right. All good points. And you you do a lot of advocating and educating on that very topic. So where can our listeners find you to hear more about what you have to say and connect with you and find out more about you? Oh, that's so nice of you to ask. I am on all the socials. I am on Twitter. My handle is QYARD08. I am on Instagram as the PhD Mama with two M's. I am also on Facebook as the PhD Mama. I have a website that is called the PhD Mama. So I am just about everywhere under the PhD Mama. Or if you can't find me under the PhD Mama, you can definitely find me under my name, Quantrilla Art. So happy to make new friends, happy to have these conversations, right? Because I feel like that's where change happens when we're having conversations. Mm -hmm. And the more people know what's going on and how broken our medical system is, basically, the faster those changes can be made. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I will link to all your socials and your website in the show notes. And thank you again so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.